So when I was in high school, I, uh, I went to the gym a lot to lift weights, and uh, when I first started lifting weights, I had no clue what I was doing. And so my dad, having spent hours in the gym uh, during his gridiron glory days, he was like, I'll take you in there, I'll show you a thing or two. I said, okay. So we go into the gym, and after a while, I'd built some strength and a little bit of size, and uh, this day had come, it was every Monday that we would do the max on the bench press, see how far I had progressed. But this day was a special day, because this day I was going to be benching 210 pounds. Yeah, I know some of you are like, that's nothing. But for, for a 130-pound, 17-year-old kid, this was a lot of weight. I've never done anything over 200 pounds. So imagine 17-year-old Eric laying on a bench, holding a bar, breathing, focusing, sweaty palms. And then I start doubting, and I think, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm not ready. And my dad, he's trying to pump me up. He's like, you can do this. It's all mental. It's in your head. You've got to visualize it. Push it up. You can do it. Okay, I can do it. Focus. Breathe. Sweaty palms. I can't do this. The doubt came back. I can't do this. My dad says, I'll tell you what. I'll put my hands under the bar, so as you lower them, I'll, you know, be there. And as you lift, I'll gently push up. And that way you don't get stuck. And I said, that's a great idea. I don't want a 200-pound bar on my neck. So that's what we did. I went, up, down. My dad helped lift the bar up. And I set it down. Woo, yeah, I feel pretty good. Look around at my dad, and he's got this ornery grin on his face like he did something. If you know my dad, you know that look. And I said, what? He's like, I never touched the bar. It was all you. He tricked me. See, my dad knew something. He knew I could do it when I didn't think I could do it. My dad knew I could do it. He just had to show me I could do it. And that's really important for what we're going to be talking about this morning, so I'm going to repeat it. My dad knew something. He knew I could do it when I didn't think I could. My dad had to show me that I could do it. And there are so many of us here, probably all of us, we have these fears, these unthinkable things that we don't even want to think about. That's why they're unthinkable. And we think, if that were to happen, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could make it through that. It could be something that happens to you or your family. And you say, if that happened, that unthinkable thing happened to them, I can't do it. I'm not ready for that. For me... My top two fears are if I lose Heidi or if I lose Eli. I mean, I love them so much. I can't imagine life without them. And I think if something unthinkable were to happen to them, I don't think I could do it. And we all have these fears, but we tend to default to this unbiblical argument that God is good, and because he's good, he won't allow unthinkable things to happen to me because I'm a good Christian, right? I'm good. And because God is good, he won't let bad things happen to good people. And that's not biblical. That's not true. Unthinkable things happen every day to good people. Daddies, husbands are not coming home at night because they're being murdered because they wear a badge. Families are mowed down by 19-ton trucks at a celebration in France. A two-year-old is snatched in front of his father's very eyes and disappears under the surface of the water. The unthinkable happens. And I'm not trying to alarm anyone, but it happens. And when it does happen, if it happens, I hope it doesn't happen to anyone in here, 
But if it were to happen, how do we overcome? And that's what we're going to see in our text. It's a very familiar text. It's uh, Joseph. We've all heard Joseph's story. Um, And so I've given you an outline in your bulletin. I'll throw it up here on the screen. First, we're going to see the unforeseen event. This is verse 1. We're going to see the unforeseen event. This is that event that messes up all the plans for Joseph. And then we'll jump quickly into the second section. This is the unthinkable. This is now Joseph living in the midst of the unthinkable. And then we'll finish with our final section, the unseen. And this is where I hope we all this morning are challenged by God. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. Chapter Genesis, or chapter Genesis, chapter 39 in Genesis, verse 1. And so Joseph's story starts in chapter 37. Let me set it for you. Joseph is born to Jacob. He's Jacob's favorite of 12 sons, so naturally his brothers hate him. And then right away we see God give Joseph two dreams. And in these dreams, God tells Joseph, not once, twice, that he's going to rule. He's going to be a ruler. And his brothers are going to bow to him, which naturally makes his brothers hate him even more. And one day he's going out to visit them in the field and they see him coming and they conspire to murder him. It's a lovely family. They strip him of his multicolored tunic, which was a symbol of his father's favor and love, and they throw him in a pit. Before they can murder him, they see some Ishmaelites coming. So they sell their brother into slavery. Look at verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, the Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. This is that unforeseen event that messed it all up. This messed up the plans. This is that appointment where the doctor says it's cancer. This is the phone call where you hear the tragic words, I'm sorry, they're gone. This is the moment that was not planned. It was not on the calendar. This is not supposed to happen. He's supposed to rule. Remember, he's supposed to reign, and his brothers are going to bow to him, but his brothers messed it all up. They sold him. He's a slave now. And God let it happen. God let it all happen. God let a 17-year-old boy get sold into slavery human traffic to a foreign country with a foreign language. What do you think is going through Joseph's head? What would be going through your head? God, I thought you were good. What are you doing? You told me I was going to rule, and now I'm a slave. What? I don't get it. I can't wrap my brain around it. And so verse 2, we jump into the second section, the unthinkable. Now we get to see Joseph. And what does he do? How does he live in the midst of the unthinkable? Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and so he became a successful man and was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. So this sentence, the Lord was with Joseph, this is very significant. If you're the people that make notes, highlight. This is a highlight moment, a circle moment, an unlined moment. This is a very important sentence. But we'll get to it in a minute. What I want you to see right now is that Joseph was a successful man, and he was in his master's house. The word house in Hebrew is bayit, and it's going to pop up over and over through this story. So we want to pay attention to that. Verse 3. Now the master saw 
that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused that all that he did to prosper in his hand. And this is the next word that's very important, hand. You can't see it if you have an NASB like me. Uh, and back in verse 1 when it says that Potiphar bought him from the Ishmaelites, it literally says he bought him from the hand of the Ishmaelites. Hand is yod in Hebrew, and it has the idea of power, of control. And so what we see is Joseph's life is under the control of the Ishmaelites, and he's bought by Potiphar. Now Potiphar has control of his life, but we're starting to see glimpses of God's goodness. It's starting to be in Joseph's hand. He's starting to get a little bit of control. And so already we start to see Joseph. Joseph is starting. Well, my slides are not working. So let's just keep going until we get there. Hey, Joseph is starting to rise in the midst of the unthinkable. Let's see what's next. I'm curious. Hey, that's good. Verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight, and he became his personal servant. He made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put into Joseph's charge. Your Bible might have a note, mine does, next to the word charge, it's hand. We see the word hand again. More is being put into Joseph's control, into his hand, into power. Verse 5, it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's hand. And with him there was that he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. So we see Joseph is rising. Things are left into his hand. And like me, every time I read this, I think, man, I want to be like Joseph. Joseph, he, everything he did, he did great. He never failed, right? Everything he did, he was successful. It's like, everything I do tends to just kind of fall apart, and then i got to clean it up, learn from my mistakes, and try it again. That's me. Joseph... Everything he did, he did great. He was a success. Everything prospered. But let me remind you, Joseph's a slave still. Joseph's reeling and dealing with the whole fact that he may never see his home country, his family, his house ever again. He doesn't want to be in Potiphar's house. He wants to be in his father's house. He's kidnapped. Trafficked to a foreign country with a foreign language made a slave. He was snatched away from his comfortable home, his comfortable life, and his loved ones. You still want to be Joseph? Do you want to be taken from your loved ones, your home? Uh, We don't. And this is one of those things we think, I can't do that. I can't do that. But we see Joseph, he rises. Joseph is rising in the midst of the unthinkable. When so many of us would say, I can't do that, and we'd fall apart, Joseph rises. Verse 6, the end of 6, it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And so the Arabic translation of this Hebrew is this. Ladies, Joseph looked pretty good. Joseph was a good-looking guy. Verse 7, It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. It literally says she lifted her eyes. She, did, she gave him the up-down with her eyes, you know what I mean? She wanted him. And she said, Lie with me. 
Verse 8, but he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all things he owns in my hand, in my control. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? This does not sound like a guy who's bitter doesn't sound like a guy who is shaking his fist at God because of his horrible situation. I don't know about you, but when bad things happen to me, I, I tend to show the blame on God because he's in control, right? And I say, how could you do this? And it's like, I want to sin. I want payback. I want to show him this isn't right. But Joseph doesn't. Joseph says, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph doesn't rise in spite of God. He rises in spite of the unthinkable. Verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Joseph remains faithful not only in the midst of the unthinkable, But in the midst of temptation, day after day, wave after wave, offer after offer, he stays faithful. And notice where the offer is, to lie beside her. Circle that if you're a circling person. This is important. We'll get it in a minute. (laughs) Verse 11, now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, because he's a faithful guy, and none of the men of the house were there. And she caught him by the garment, saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and went outside. So there's a few things we want to notice here. One is this. Back in verse 8, when it says, uh, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, it literally says, my master doesn't know what happens in the house. He doesn't know. So one, Potiphar doesn't know what's going on. Two, in verse 11, we see that no one else is there. No one's in the house. What happens in Potiphar's house stays in Potiphar's house. No one's going to know. No one's going to get hurt. Joseph, you probably kind of deserve this after everything you've been through. I mean, it's just sex, right? It's just once, and plus you'll stop nagging you day after day. These are the thoughts we have when we're tempted. No one's going to get hurt. No one's going to know. I kind of deserve it. God's a good God, and he wants me to be happy. It's just sex, right? These are all lies, and Joseph knows it. A third thing we want to notice is where did he leave the garment? In her hand, in the house. There's a power shift. She has the control over Joseph now, and she knows it. Look at verse 13. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. Now watch how a person without God exploits power. She plays the race card, this Hebrew. And then she makes the group subversive, because most likely they were under his control. And then she divides them. He he came to make sport of us. To make sport means to take advantage, to um, humiliate This Hebrew came to humiliate, to take advantage of us, Egyptians. So she divides, verse 15. 
When he heard that I raised my voice and I screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. She plants the evidence beside her. Where was the temptation back in verse 10 for Joseph to lie? He was supposed to lie beside her. That's what she wanted. And he refused. He did what was right. He was faithful. He was the good Christian. He said no. But now he's going to suffer as though he did it. She lays the garment beside her. Verse 17. Then she spoke to him, this is the master, these words. The Hebrew slave, so now she plays the race card and the social class card. This Hebrew slave whom you brought, she blames the husband. You brought him here. He came in to make sport of us. Is that what it says? Now it says, he came in to humiliate me. She plays the victim card. And I raised my voice and screamed, and he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail. The word jail is the Hebrew word house. The roundhouse, the prison house. From Potiphar's house to the prison house. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. The prison house. The unthinkable just got worse. Can't imagine what's going through Joseph's head. But I'll tell you this. If Joseph had a theology that a good God doesn't let bad things happen to good people, he would have thrown God out that moment. Because what did Joseph do? Nothing. Joseph was innocent. Joseph had done nothing. And I'm sure he was confused. I'd be confused. If this is your theology, if you think that because God is good, and he is good, that the unthinkable can't happen to us because we are his children or because we are good, your idea of God will be shattered and your faith will fail if you find yourself in the midst of the unthinkable. Verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph, and he extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Here's the sentence again. The Lord is with Joseph. I told you it's important. It's back. Okay, this is a literary device. So what the author's doing is he's taking Joseph's story and he's sandwiching it. It's called an inclusio, or we call it bookends. So like, just like bookends, we'll smash books together on a shelf. That's what's going on. Moses is using this sentence, the Lord was with Joseph, to hold his story together. And this is a very significant sentence. It goes all the way back to his great-granddad, Abraham. Genesis 12, 3, God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, through your descendants, Abraham, I will bless all the families of the earth. It's a pretty good deal. And as we read Genesis, we see this promise confirmed to his son, his descendant, Isaac. Okay, there's include bookends. And this is where we see, we see this to Isaac. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, I am with you. And as we keep reading the story through Genesis, we see that this promise is confirmed to his son, Jacob. Behold, I am with you. So this is very significant. And then here in our story, we see it used in a very special way. The Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph. 
God's goodness and faithfulness holds Joseph's story together, and it holds our story together too. Moses wrote that God extended kindness to Joseph. That word kindness is kessed. You've heard JB talk about it. It's, it's God's loyal, unwavering, faithful, unconditional love. He extends that to Joseph. Joseph is never bitter in the story. He never blames God. And I've, I've looked at um, all the extra biblical writings of this time. Uh, it took a long time. And never once does Joseph hit up Twitter or Facebook and rant and rave, shake his fist at God, blame his brothers. You don't see that from Joseph. We don't see Joseph fall because of his unfair, unthinkable circumstances. We see Joseph do the opposite. When we would say, I can't do that, we see Joseph rise. He rises because he knows something about his God. He sees something that we can't see in the text. Sometimes we don't see things on this side of heaven, do we? But Joseph sees things. And we're going to see it too. Now as we move into the next section, the unseen. Who here, if you were Joseph and you had a choice, would you choose Potiphar's house with all the luxuries? Probably had a pool, because Egypt is hot. Or would you choose the prison house, the dark, damp, stinky, disease-riddled prison house? Which would you choose? I'd choose the comforts of Potiphar's house. But God chose the uncomfortable, the discomfort of the prison house for Joseph. And when he does, we think, God, okay, I really don't know what's going on now. Joseph was innocent. Joseph said, no, she planted the evidence. And now he's the one suffering while she's off in the palace. It's not fair. But there's one thing in the prison house that is not in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's house probably had everything but this one thing. Does anybody know what that one thing is that it doesn't have? Prisoners. Someone said it. I know they did. Yeah, prisoners were in the prison house. Look at verse 22. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's hand because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made prosper. See, it's the Lord who is in control of the story. It's God who is sovereign. It's not the Ishmaelites who have control over Joseph. It's not Potiphar who has control over Joseph. It's not Potiphar's wife who has control over Joseph. Joseph doesn't even have control over Joseph in the story. It's God who's in control. It's God who is sovereign. And you probably know the rest of the story. So he's in the prison, and he meets Pharaoh's cupbearer, right? And Pharaoh's cupbearer has a dream. Joseph interprets the dream. Three days later, the cupbearer is restored to his office under Pharaoh. And we think, all right, Joseph, you know a guy in a high place. Good. Things are starting to turn around. But that chapter ends with the sad words, the cupbearer forgot Joseph. (sighs) Joseph, can't catch a break. Two years later, though, we see God had not forgotten Joseph. He sends two dreams to Pharaoh. And guess who Pharaoh calls on to interpret those dreams? Joseph. So they bring Joseph before Pharaoh. And he's there, and he interprets the dreams. And he says, hey, you're going to have seven great years of harvest. It's going to be great. But after that, you're going to have seven horrible years of famine. 
And I know you don't ask me, but I'm, I'm, I think you might want to use those first seven years to prepare for the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, that's a great idea. Why don't you do it? And so he hands Joseph his signet ring, the king's signet ring, the symbol of Egypt's power and authority. And guess where he puts it? He puts it in Joseph's hand. Joseph is now second in command of Egypt. And so I'm going to turn to chapter 50, which is the last chapter of Genesis. It's the last chapter of um, Joseph's story. But before I do, I just want to say, sometimes our discomfort is for our good. Sometimes our discomfort is for our good. God is sovereign. We are not. God is in control. We are not. And this is a really good thing. Because I think we all wanted to choose Potiphar's house. And if we would have had control... If we would have got what we wanted, we would have missed the divine appointment in the prison house. See, God used that to make that divine appointment happen. To meet the cupbearer, to be made number two in Egypt. And so sometimes our discomfort is for our good. Many of you know Heidi is laid up in a hospital in Tulsa. She's on bed rest. She's been there for a little over a week and has more weeks to go. I can tell you she's very uncomfortable uh, she's got wires everywhere. She's got an IV port. She's got straps and all kinds of stuff. And she's skin is starting to get irritated from the straps and from all that nasty jelly they put on you to pick up the heartbeat. Her back is starting to really hurt from being in bed. She's got restless leg, which I don't know anything about, but it sounds terrible. She is uncomfortable. But Heidi has an amazing attitude. It's because Heidi knows sometimes her discomfort is for her good. She knows her discomfort right now is for her good and the good of the twins inside her. And so she has an amazing outlook. Sometimes our discomfort is for our good. And we see Joseph rise in the midst of his discomfort. And when we realize this, when we realize sometimes our discomfort is for our good, we'll rise too. So chapter 50, Jacob's died. And his, Joseph's brothers are all like freaking out because they're like, whoa, you know, what if Joseph's been having a grudge this whole time? And now that dad's dead, he's going to exact his revenge. We're dead. What are we going to do? So they come up with a plan. Let's go to Joseph. And they go to Joseph and they say, hey, you know, dad, he really wouldn't want anything bad to happen to us, you know, because we're family. And Joseph's seeing through him. He says this in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. For good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. See, what they meant for evil, to sell him off into slavery, God meant for good. God allowed it, and God orchestrated it, because God is sovereign, he's in control. And by doing that, he doesn't just save many people, he saves his, Joseph's family. The future of Israel, from those 12 sons would come the 12 tribes. And where did they go in the midst of the famine? They went to Egypt. If Joseph would have stayed with his family, never gone to Egypt, there would be no provision there. They could have perished. And if they perished, we perish. Because from Israel comes the Messiah. Apart from whom, there is no life. So God is a good God. What an unseen scheme. Joseph rises, and you too can rise when unforeseen events happen, when you're living in the midst of the unthinkable. 
God is good, he is faithful, and he is sovereign. In the youth group, I don't know how long we've been doing this, but we've been praying for a little three-year-old boy who's been battling cancer his entire three years of life. We have not stopped praying for a miracle, but recently our prayers for a miracle have turned to prayers for comfort for his parents because earlier this month the cancer finally overtook his fragile little body and he went to go be with Jesus. And I found out while I was in England on a mission trip, Heidi texted me the bad news and I just went upstairs um, to the room and I just prayed. I meant to pray for the parents, but I'll be honest, what happened was I just got mad. I was like, I don't get it, God. I don't understand. You are good. You are faithful. And you are in control of all things on that side of heaven. So why did this little boy suffer on this side? I couldn't wrap my brain around it. And I got back, and Heidi read me the mother's post on the Facebook prayer, prayer page, and uh, I was floored by what she wrote. And I want to share it with you this morning. For those of you who think, I can't do it. To those of you who are thinking, I can't do the, I can't rise in the midst of the unthinkable. And to those of you who are looking up at that bar, maybe today, and you're thinking, I can't do it. She writes this. This morning at 3.13 a.m., Zayden ran into the arms of Jesus. John and I were able to hold and kiss and love him for hours. It was the most precious and beautiful moment of my life. We welcomed him into the world, and we are so abundantly blessed to witness the miracle of him meeting Jesus. We love him. He has grown us to love the Lord. His legacy is loving Jesus. Smile when you have no reason to smile and to be a different superhero every day. I'll post it in the memorial service time and place soon. Thank you for all your prayers. God is good, he is faithful, and he is sovereign. We will continue not to be shaken. Like Joseph, this mom is rising in the midst of the unthinkable tragedy of losing her three-year-old son days before his fourth birthday. She's rising because she sees the unseen in the midst of the unthinkable. She writes, God is good, he is faithful, and he is sovereign. How did Joseph rise and how? Can we rise in the midst of the unthinkable? We see the unseen. We cling to the truth that God is good when nothing around us is good. He is faithful when we feel alone. He is sovereign and and in control when everything seems out of control. That is our God, and we cling to that. We can all, well, that's not right. We can all rise. We are just not all convinced we can rise. Here is how I know we all can rise, and then I'll be done. Because we have a Savior who's already risen. Jesus died paying for sin. Three days later, he conquered death. He rose from the grave. Paul writes in Romans 6 that we who have believed have been buried and risen up with him to walk in a new life. He calls it the resurrected life, the risen life. We have the risen life living inside of us. That risen life is eternal life. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. It's Jesus living in us. It's his very life living in us. And we forget that sometimes. We try to take control and do everything on our own. And we forget that the risen one lives in us. 
And if you're here or you're watching online and you're wondering, do I have this risen life? How can I get this risen life? Listen very closely. It comes by faith in the risen one, by faith alone in Christ alone. And when you put your faith in him, he comes in to indwell you and he empowers you. And he does so in the midst of the unthinkable. Stephen's going to come up and close us out. Back in the gym, lifting weights, my dad knew I could do it. He just had to show me. And I hope this morning that your heavenly dad, for those of you who think you can't do it, I hope he's shown you that you too can do it, that you can rise.